Y'all, I have my first ever podcast sponsorship and it's a doozy. Are you ready? This episode of Anti-Social Studies is sponsored by the LBJ Presidential Library and Foundation. If you're in the Austin area, visit the LBJ Library and Museum. If not, check out lbjlibrary.org to explore their e-museum, digital archives, and educational resources. That's right, President Johnson's official library and museum is sponsoring my episode all about LBJ. Like, oh my gosh. Now, I've taken many a student on a field trip there, and everyone always leaves pleasantly surprised. I genuinely love this museum. I mean, they have a piece of the moon on display there. Anyway, I really appreciate their support on this podcast episode. They invited me for a personal tour of the museum. They let me nerd out about genuinely one of my favorite presidents. And I'd also like to note with pride that I did send along this whole transcript of this entire episode so that LBJ experts could look it over. And proving that graduate school did in fact teach me something, they had no notes, except that I add in one word, one word in the whole episode, allegedly. It'll be a fun little game. You can see if you can spot it as you listen. All right, so let's get on with the show. If JFK was the optimism of what the 1960s could be, then LBJ was the realism of what it actually was. I don't know if that sentence makes sense, but I'm sure it will by the end of this episode. So remember last episode when I said that the 1960s were insane? Well, it turns out, as always, I was right. And like, we're actually going to need three episodes just to start making sense of this decade. Last episode, we talked about JFK. Next episode, we're going to dive into the main civil rights movements and the other protests and rights movements that came along with it in the 1960s and into the 1970s. But for today, I want to focus on our first true Texan president. Like, Eisenhower was born in Texas, but that does not count. Who was LBJ? What did he hope would be his legacy? And why did it end up just being mostly about Vietnam? Today's episode is all about LBJ, or the U.S. gets the Johnson treatment. This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glenkler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. Who the hell was LBJ? Alright y'all, I'm an Austinite. Like I said, the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum is literally a five minute drive from my house on the UT campus. On many a weekend road trip, I've driven through Johnson City, LBJ's hometown, which is named not after him, which would have been weird to name a town after a child, but after his 19th century distant cousin. I sat front row as Lucy Baines Johnson, his youngest daughter, spoke on a panel with Dan Rather about the 1960s. I was freaking out, by the way. I kind of love LBJ, and yet I also don't understand him. And I'm not going to try to fully in this episode because we're here for the big picture, not to plumb the depths of each president's psyche. Although that would make a great tagline for a different podcast. For now, I just want to give us the kind of biography.com version of LBJ, the bulldozing, wouldn't age well, loudmouth Texan who became quite possibly our most socially active and progressive president ever. Now, we've only had three Texan presidents and two of them were Bushes, so it's fair that a casual observer might assume that LBJ was similarly conservative, but that casual observer would be wrong. Remember, Johnson is from a different political era. He's a New Deal Democrat through and through, but he's not a socially conservative, fiscally liberal Southern Democrat. You know, the government should like create jobs, but stay out of segregation. He's a true progressive Democrat who's going to eventually use his power to pass landmark civil rights legislation and declare a full-on war on poverty and to understand why we have to look at his childhood. So Johnson was born in 1908. 
For reference, Teddy Roosevelt was in his last year of the presidency, and he grew up on a farm in the hill country of Texas without electricity or indoor plumbing. He attended college at what is now called Texas State University, which is also where I got my master's degree in history, no big deal. And there he studied, wait for it, history and education. Oh my God. After graduating, he worked as a high school teacher. Ugh. He's actually the only president who has ever worked in K through 12 education. I had this confirmed on my visit to the museum. Also, during his college years, he had to take a year off to pay for college by working for nine months teaching Mexican-American children at a poor, segregated school outside of San Antonio. And this school year is going to be really important in his life. He's going to reminisce later, quote, I shall never forget the faces of the boys and the girls in that little Wellhausen Mexican school. And I remember even yet the pain of realizing and knowing then that college was closed to practically every one of those children because they were too poor. And I think it was then that I made up my mind that this nation could never rest while the door to knowledge remained closed to any American. So just to recap, LBJ grew up in Central Texas, earned a degree in history at Texas State, and became radicalized while teaching? Am I the ghost of LBJ? Now, it's true that he did come from a farming family, but it was an influential farming family in Central Texas. So in addition to being a struggling farmer and cattle speculator, his dad, Sam Johnson, was also a member of the Texas House of Representatives. And he recognized early on that his son had a similar talent for talking. When he was 23, LBJ was recommended and took a job working for his U.S. representative. And importantly, LBJ left teaching to start working in Congress in 1931, just one year before FDR's election. He's going to be right in the middle of the action for the most important democratic era in U.S. history. The fact that his college years were spent observing the devastating impact of segregation and poverty, and then his young political career coincided with FDR's New Deal, meant that LBJ would be a progressive for life. When he was just 27, LBJ was appointed head of the Texas National Youth Administration. He was now a state administrator of a New Deal program that allowed him to create educational and job opportunities for young Texans. And just two years later, he decided to run for Congress himself. By 1937, at the age of 28, he was representing Austin and the surrounding Hill Country in the U.S. House of Representatives. And FDR himself really quickly identified this young Texan as a helpful ally for promoting his New Deal in the deep Texas South. Remember those Southern Democrats that JFK was beholden to in the last episode, right? I mean, why do you think Kennedy is going to choose LBJ as his running mate? LBJ rose through the ranks of politics partly because of his unique position as a white Democrat from the South who could speak the language of Southern Democrats while still promoting the policies of Northern liberal leaders like New Yorker FDR or the Massachusetts Kennedys. And I actually learned something about this moment in LBJ's career on my most recent visit to his presidential museum. He helped woo President Roosevelt by publicly supporting this really controversial plan that FDR had to add more justices to the Supreme Court. If you remember from a previous episode, FDR proposed expanding the Supreme Court and, you know, conveniently, he would get to pick all the new members. And optimistically, this was like supposed to be a reflection of how much the U.S. population had grown since its inception. But, you know, cynically, it also seemed like a way to swing the court in favor of his New Deal programs. Either way, many Democrats kind of publicly rejected the so-called court packing plan, but a young Johnson in the U.S. House of Representatives supported it. And he shined just a little spotlight for FDR to see him as a young, up-and-coming political ally. Very savvy. Similar to young FDR, from here on out, LBJ just really seemed to understand exactly what he needed to do at each step of his career to maximize his power and influence. 
After being one of the first members of Congress to volunteer for active military duty when World War II broke out, the president actually sent him as an observer slash political ally to be his eyes and ears in the war in the Pacific. So he was supposed to be on a plane that actually got shot down with no survivors, but he lost his seat at the last minute because he had to use the bathroom. Now, the plane LBJ ended up being on did experience a mechanical failure and had to turn around, possibly taking fire from the Japanese. Uh, The historical record is somewhat murky about whether the plane Johnson was on was actually hit, but I guess we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. When they landed, Johnson was given the Silver Star Award for, quote, coolness. And no, I'm not joking. Here's the full quote. The plane in which Lieutenant Commander Johnson was an observer developed mechanical trouble and was forced to turn back alone, presenting a favorable target to the enemy fighters, and he evidenced marked coolness in spite of the hazards involved. (laughs) Considering that Johnson was just an observer sent by the president and no one else in the plane, like the pilot, anything else was given any awards, I'm led to believe that this award was really kind of a political trophy for Johnson to take back with him to D.C. And historian and biographer Robert Caro seems to agree, saying, quote, Because if you accept everything that he said, he was still in action for no more than 13 minutes and only as an observer. Men who flew many missions, brave men, never got a silver star. Either way, Johnson was now able to run for Senate in 1948 as a World War II veteran and silver star recipient. And if by now you're thinking, hmm, it seems like LBJ is really good at being in the right place at the right time, And also, it kind of seems like he's not above some old-fashioned sausage-making politics to get into the rooms where it happens. Well, you would be right, but hold on to your hats, because you get even more right. You see, in 1948, when he ran for U.S. Senate, it was... it was weird. In the Democratic primary, which was basically the true election in Texas at the time, he was a young upstart running against a very popular former governor, and he lost... Well, Johnson's opponent got more votes than him, but not enough to win, so they had a runoff. And then, in that runoff, Johnson won? Seems kind of weird. Yeah, he won by just 87 votes. Out of 988,295 votes cast, Johnson won by 87. Oh yeah, and at least 200 ballots were sent in six days after the election, by a local political boss, George Barr. And those ballots were literally recorded on the sheet in alphabetical order, like as if all 200 voters had magically voted in alphabetical order, and they were written with the same pen in the same handwriting. And many of those people on that list later insisted they didn't vote on that day. (laughs) Right, so yeah, whether or not Johnson was directly involved, the Senate race was stolen for him allegedly, by political allies. Now, does this matter? Yes, of course it matters. Is this the first or last time something like this happened? I mean, have you been listening to this podcast at all, right? Whatever you think about this, Johnson became a U.S. senator, and he quickly excelled. He turned out to be an expert at becoming friends with older, more influential senators across the South, especially conservatives in the Southern Democrat coalition. By 1953, he was selected to be the Senate Minority Leader. He was the most junior senator ever elected to this position. And it's in this position, as Senate Minority Leader, and then when Democrats win control of the Senate Majority Leader, that we start to really see the so-called Johnson treatment take shape. 
Now, many historians like Caro and Dalek believe that LBJ was the most effective Senate majority leader in history. He gathered intelligence. He knew exactly what each senator cared about and what he was prejudiced against, and he often used that to gain votes. Johnson was ruthless with handshakes and backroom deals to get the votes he needed. And he became famous for the Johnson treatment, which is described here by journalists. It's a long quote, but stick with me. The treatment could last 10 minutes or four hours. It came enveloping its target at the Johnson Ranch swimming pool in one of Johnson's offices in the Senate cloakroom on the floor of the Senate itself, wherever Johnson might find a fellow senator within his reach. Its tone could be supplication, accusation, cajolery, exuberance, scorn, tears, complaint, and the hint of threat. It was all of these together. It ran the gamut of human emotions. Its velocity was breathtaking, and it was all in one direction. Interjections from the target were rare. Johnson anticipated them before they could be spoken. He moved in close, his face a scant millimeter from his target, his eyes widening and narrowing, his eyebrows rising and falling. From his pockets poured clippings, memos, statistics, mimicry, humor, and the genius of analogy made the treatment an almost hypnotic experience and rendered the target stunned and helpless. Now, I could actually go way more in detail about the Johnson treatment in all of its like locker room talk glory, but I might lose my clean rating for this podcast. Instead, I'm going to let LBJ speak for himself because you see, one thing that's true of both Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird, is that they both really understood the importance of history. I mean, side note, Johnson gave Lady Bird a book on Nazism as a gift while they were dating in the 1930s. Like, that is a total history nerd move. But this also means that later on, when they became president and first lady, they recorded everything they could. Lady Bird kept a daily diary and audio recording of her thoughts that began the day Kennedy was assassinated. This also means that we can hear the Johnson treatment in full effect firsthand. So here is a clip of LBJ trying to convince Dick Russell to join the Warren Commission to investigate Kennedy's assassination. What you're going to hear is the result of multiple conversations where Senator Richard Russell is saying, I don't want to serve on the Warren Commission. I don't want to be involved in this. And the end result, what you're going to hear is LBJ saying, well, uh, I actually already announced that you're going to be on it. So here you go. All right, let's listen to him. Give him the Johnson treatment. Okay, now. Well, I, I, I really, Mr. President, unless you, uh, well, I, I, I'm, unless you really think it'd be of some danger, yeah, I know it would be. It saved my life. I declare, I don't want to say that. I know you don't want to do anything, but I want you to. And I think that this is important enough, and you'll see why. Well, now, uh, Mr. President, uh, I, I know I don't have to tell you my devotion to you, but I just can't say it Dick has already Dick has already been announced, and you can serve with anybody for the good of America, and uh, and you can do anything for your country, and don't go to give me that kind of stuff about you can't serve with anybody. You can do anything. It's not only that. I, I just uh, I don't think the Chief Justice should have served on. Well, uh, uh, Chief Justice ought to do anything he can to save America, and right now we've got a we've got a very touchy thing, and you wait till you look at this evidence, and you wait till you look at this report. Now, don't, uh, just, I'm not going to lead you wrong, and you're not going to, you're not going to be an old dog tray, you're not going to be an old dog tray company, but, uh, you never turned your country down, well, this is not me, this is your country, but, uh, you've got, you're my man on that commission, and you're going to do it, and don't tell me what you can do and what you can't, because, uh, I can't arrest you, and I'm not going to, put the FBI on you, but uh, you're goddamn sure going to serve, I'll tell you that. 
And just in case you missed it, that last section there was, and you're going to do it. And don't tell me what you can do and what you can't, because I can't arrest you. And I'm not going to put the FBI on you, but you're goddamn sure going to serve. I'll tell you that. Johnson in general is just a force of nature. So back in 1955, he's still a U.S. senator. After suffering an almost fatal heart attack, it's probably caused by the 60 cigarettes he smoked every day. Johnson just quit cold turkey and basically just didn't smoke another cigarette again until he left the White House 14 years later. He returned to work soon after his heart attack and just picked right back up where he left off. Okay, so after all of this, you might be wondering, why do I like Johnson? And I'm honestly not totally sure because like, even though he was difficult and rough on the people around him and definitely not someone whose behavior would fly in the modern workplace, right? Like Johnson does not age well. At his core, what you'll see is that he seemed to be optimistic and hopeful. And sure, he used the Johnson treatment to get what he wanted, including more power and influence for himself. But often what he wanted was, I don't know, let's say an end to poverty or racial segregation, which I don't know, seemed like pretty good goals. Act two, the Great Society. So Johnson ran for president in 1960. He was beaten out by Kennedy in the Democratic primary, although LBJ carried most of the white Southern Democrat votes. And that seems to be why JFK, kind of somewhat surprisingly, considering that Johnson had been very critical of the Kennedys during the campaign, but JFK offered Johnson the vice president spot on his ticket and it paid off. Between JFK's face on television and Johnson's wheeling and dealing behind closed doors, they won the White House in 1960 against Nixon. And he was a fairly active VP, which should surprise no one by now. And other close allies of the president, especially brother Bobby Kennedy, pretty openly disliked or at least feared LBJ and his crude approach to politics. There were actually rumors that he was going to be dropped from the 1964 ticket, but Kennedy insisted that those were wrong and that Johnson would run with him again. I mean, again, those Southern Democrats were the key. Now, obviously, none of that would matter in the end, because in 1963, JFK was assassinated and Johnson became our eighth accidental president in American history. LBJ ascending to the presidency in 1963, in my opinion, is one of those watershed moments in U.S. history. With chaos and dissent brewing at home and the Cold War looming abroad, I really can't imagine a vice president better situated to jump into action after the death of Kennedy. Like, who else would have the congressional connections and insider information, along with the just bravado that seems necessary to claim a presidency no one elected you to? He was uniquely able to draw upon the hope and optimism of Kennedy, coupled with the guilt and trauma of his assassination, to build a democratic domestic agenda that rivaled his hero, FDR's New Deal. So what did Johnson accomplish as president? Spoiler, it's a lot. His Great Society domestic programs waged war on poverty, a noble cause. Although, as John Green says, do not go to war with a noun, you will always lose. Still, Johnson made good on his experience teaching low-income students in rural Texas. His Economic Opportunity Act included 10 new programs aimed at helping mostly young inner-city Americans. The Neighborhood Youth Corps established work-study programs. The Job Corps helped unemployed 16 to 21-year-olds acquire relevant skills. VISTA was essentially a domestic peace corps, Upward Bound offered tutoring to high school students, and the Work Experience Program provided daycare and support to poor households. That's what happens when you put a former teacher in the White House. Oh, right, and I don't know, in his first year as president, he signed into law the Civil Rights Act. 
This landmark legislation formally ended racial segregation, and it's going to be followed up one year later with the Voting Rights Act. And don't worry, I'm going to talk way more about this legislation next episode. For now, just remember that without LBJ, a Southerner who knew how to manhandle legislation through Congress, it's kind of hard to imagine a lot of these sweeping civil rights bills from being passed when they did. Now, Johnson won election in his own right in 1964 in a landslide, like he won all but six states in the Electoral College. And as evidence of how confusing national party politics still was at this point, I want to take a quick detour and look for a minute at Johnson's opponent in the 1964 election, a conservative named Barry Goldwater. Goldwater was a militant anti-communist who said things like, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. He like casually discussed the use of atomic weapons, which just two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis made a lot of Americans nervous, to say the least. LBJ responded brilliantly with a very famous TV campaign ad, a young girl plucking petals from a daisy that ends in a nuclear explosion. Over the mushroom cloud, Johnson says, These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. I mean, it wasn't subtle. With domestic policy, Barry Goldwater was kind of foreshadowing of a new growing conservative political movement that's going to come to power under Reagan. I mean, like speeches made on behalf of Goldwater's 1964 campaign launched Ronald Reagan's political career. Goldwater railed against the federal government overreaching into what he deemed issues for the states and individuals to decide, like Social Security and other New Deal era programs. He used an incredibly strict interpretation of the Constitution to vote against the Civil Rights Act and erode other important societal legislation, especially for Americans of color. But similar to our guy LBJ, Goldwater as a person was surprisingly complex. Like, for example, he was responsible for desegregating the Senate cafeteria so that his legislative assistant, a black woman named Catherine Maxwell, could eat alongside other Senate employees. He later on in his life said that voting against the Civil Rights Act was his greatest regret. And I mean, in general, he was really part of the leave it up to the states contingent of civil rights supporters that, you know, doesn't actually work. I mean, leaving it up to the states was literally how we ended up with Jim Crow in the first place. He was fiscally conservative at a time when even more so than today, poverty was almost intrinsically linked to race. And his active, to say the least, approach to the Cold War was basically terrifying to most mainstream Republicans even. But he was also close friends with Kennedy, and he was so distraught by his assassination that he struggled to regroup and face Johnson fully in the rest of the campaign. Now, I don't think I need to say this out loud, but I'm not a fan of Barry Goldwater, but I just think it's another important reminder that people from history are almost always more interesting and more complex than we give them credit for. Okay, back to LBJ. It was during the campaign of 1964 that LBJ illuminated his proposed Great Society. In a speech at the University of Michigan, he spoke directly to young people saying, quote, Your imagination, your initiative, and your indignation will determine whether we build a society where progress is the servant of our needs or a society where old values and new visions are buried under unbridled growth. For in your time, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. 
It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we are totally committed in our time. But that is just the beginning. He went on to propose a great society in cities, in classrooms, and in the countryside. It's a really beautiful speech that's still very relevant today. You should just go read the whole thing. Now, the main achievements of the Great Society are essentially a continuation and expansion of FDR's New Deal. His administration created over 60 new programs in just three years, including Medicare, health insurance to senior citizens, and Medicaid, health insurance to people below the poverty line. He invested millions of dollars into education. He created Project Head Start, a national preschool program for economically disadvantaged children. On the issue of housing, he created the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and he appointed Robert Weaver, the first black man to serve in a president's cabinet ever. He passed the Immigration Act of 1965 that finally ended the racist quota systems that gave preference to Northern European immigrants. This truly opened the door to immigration from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Side note, this was the moment in 1965 when the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, from the 1880s, was finally reversed, like almost a century later. And of course, we haven't even fully talked about his crowning domestic achievements yet, right? He signed the Voting Rights Act into law on the same desk that was used by the Supreme Court to hand down the Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson verdicts. And this desk was actually one of my favorite items that was on display in his museum. And in true Johnson fashion, he didn't exactly ask for permission before taking it to put in his museum. Congress was like, um, that desk belongs to us. And he was like, mm, it belongs in Austin now. Again, more on civil rights next episode. But even without that, LBJ's legacy would be incredibly strong if it weren't for one thing. What is it? Oh, right. That pesky war in Vietnam. What do you think about this Vietnam thing? What, what I'd like to hear you talk a little bit. Uh, Frankly, Mr. President, if you would tell me that I was authorized to settle it as I saw fit, I would uh, respectfully decline to undertake it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a damn worst mess I ever saw. And, uh, well, it impeached President though that run out, wouldn't it? I just don't believe ever, outside of Morris, everybody I talked to says you got to go in, including Hickenlooper, including all the Republicans. None of them disagreed with him yesterday when he made the statement that we had to stand. And I don't know how in the hell you're going to get out unless they tell you to get out. I'll tell you, it'll be the most expensive venture this country ever went into. I've got a little sergeant over at works for me over to the house, and he's got six children. And I just put him up as the United States Army and Air Force and Navy every time I think about making this decision and think about sending that father of those six kids in there. And uh, what the hell are we going to get out of his darning? And it, it just uh, makes the chills run up my back. It does me. I just, I just can't see it. I haven't got the nerve to do it, and uh, I don't see any other way out of it. Act 3, The Vietnam War. Johnson's decision to escalate our involvement in the Vietnam War is considered by many modern historians to be one of the single worst decisions in American history, and I agree. Now, I'm possibly more sympathetic than I should be, especially because, in addition to those tapes you just heard, I've seen a lot of evidence that Johnson was struggling with this decision, and he was trusting and following the advice of his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, who had earned his credentials by advising JFK on the blockade strategy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Based on the tapes we just heard, LBJ was not a war-hungry nationalist. He wasn't Goldwater proposing we nuke our way out of trouble. He understood the complexity and the potential nightmare of war, but he also didn't seem to see any other way out of it. By all accounts, Johnson had his eyes firmly on his domestic agenda. He wanted to make his great society a reality, and the continuing problems in Southeast Asia were just a frustrating reality he would rather not have to deal with. And it's very human to try to wish a problem away and take the advice of people telling you that everything could just be fixed with a few more troops. But ultimately, the blame falls on LBJ as it should. Like we heard in that tape, he had just as many advisors telling him not to get further into the conflict. So how do we go from a few thousand military advisors in Vietnam under JFK to, well, you know, apocalypse now? There are really two key events in the Vietnam War that are essentially bookends to LBJ's presidency as it relates to Vietnam. First, the Gulf of Tonkin, and then later, the Tet Offensive. And you know we love alliteration here on this podcast to help us keep track of the narrative, and the two T's of Vietnam do not disappoint. First up, in 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Now, at this point, the U.S. had military advisors in South Vietnam, but no active duty troops. We did, however, have a naval presence across East Asia to protect our new allies of Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and South Vietnam from the looming communist threats. On August 2nd, 1964, a destroyer, the USS Maddox, was patrolling the waters when it was fired on by three North Vietnamese torpedo boats. There was a small engagement in which a U.S. aircraft, which had come to support, was damaged, and four North Vietnamese sailors were killed. Obviously, tensions were high when two days later, the Maddox, now joined by another destroyer, saw radar and sonar evidence of an attack. They opened fire and reported back to base that they were being attacked by North Vietnamese ships. The only problem? Um, they weren't. Like, there weren't any North Vietnamese ships. Like, no one was attacking them. The captain of the Maddox pretty quickly reported the mistake, but the NSA had already sent off its report to LBJ, who concluded that both attacks were real and the U.S. needed to take action. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, wait, I have so many questions. For one, if we were so ready to get more involved, then why was the first real attack not enough? And then, how did we just accidentally make up a whole fake attack that never happened? Okay, this is the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and we got to get into the details for a second. So just to clarify, the first attack was real. North Vietnamese boats fired torpedoes on a U.S. destroyer. But the government failed to mention a few key points. For one, the U.S. fired first. The USS Maddox fired a warning shot at the North Vietnamese boats, which could have been misinterpreted by them as an attack. And second, the U.S. was three to four nautical miles inside North Vietnamese naval territory. Johnson had actually ordered our ships to test the North Vietnamese resolve on maintaining these boundaries that they had set. Basically, we were seeing how aggressively they would defend this line in the water that they had established around their coast. Oh yeah, and this test by the USS Maddox coincided with South Vietnamese coastal raids. So, from the North's perspective, this was a coordinated attack between the South Vietnamese and the United States. Okay, let's think about this another way. Imagine if during the U.S. Civil War, the British, who were considering siding with the South to get their cotton supply back on the market, what if the British had sent massive ships to patrol the northern coastline? And imagine if those British warships had crossed the U.S. naval boundary around, let's say, New York City to test and see if we would use our ships to defend ourselves. Then they fire a warning shot at us, 
in our territory. Oh yeah, and at the same time, the Confederacy was raiding the southern coastline with weapons and resources given to them by the British. Is it so crazy to think that we would have fired back in that same situation? Now, as for the second fictional attack, we have to remember that ships were often fighting enemies that they just couldn't even see. Remember the massive Battle of Midway during World War II? No enemy ships were ever even inside of each other. And so with this second engagement, air quotes here, happening in the middle of the night, the U.S. ships were relying heavily on radar and sonar to detect the enemy. So essentially, the U.S. ships were picking up radio signals that sounded like an attack was coming, and they saw something on their radar and sonar that they believed were North Vietnamese ships. And for around two hours, the U.S. fired on these targets trying to find the enemy until ultimately they determined that nothing was there. But at the same time, the U.S. ships were in constant communication with other government entities during this alleged attack. And they were sending reports back to D.C. constantly about fighting with the North Vietnamese, which is what they thought they were doing. Now, to his credit, the captain of the Maddox sent a report soon after this one-sided skirmish ended saying, quote, Review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear doubtful. Freak weather effects on radar and overeager sonar men may have accounted for many reports. No actual visual sightings by the Maddox suggest complete evaluation before any further action taken. Basically, whoops, pretty sure these were like weird weather incidents that were showing up on our radar and some of the guys on our ships got a little overeager. Pause before you make any decisions. But... Johnson took the combination of the real attack two days earlier, plus the erroneous reports of the second attack, and he interrupted national television just before midnight to announce the dramatic attacks, plural, by the aggressive North Vietnamese. To the American audience at home, we were just peacefully minding our own business in international waters, protecting Asia from the communist threat when North Vietnamese ships approached and fired on us unprovoked. It's kind of like back in 1898 when we were peacefully minding our business in Havana Harbor. Why were we there? When the dastardly Spanish blew up the USS Maine. Expedited by the rising newspaper industry, we were at war before many started questioning if it hadn't just been an accident, right? With the combination of the heightened tension of the Cold War, the actual skirmish days earlier, and the new media of television, we were effectively at war six days later. Now, we weren't actually at war because, well... The U.S. actually has never formally declared war since World War II, not once. But Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave LBJ unprecedented power to use conventional military force in Vietnam without a formal declaration of war. The key part of the resolution reads, quote, that the Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. Ooh. Similar to the Korean War being called a police action by UN forces, the Vietnam War was framed as a presidential action sanctioned by Congress to defend and prevent future attacks against U.S. forces in the region. We weren't declaring war on North Vietnam. We were just letting the commander-in-chief do what he needed to do to defend our troops abroad. But it's that last clause that made everyone real nervous to prevent further aggression. This is a turning point in American military history. We were now acknowledging publicly that the U.S. military's purpose was not just to defend U.S. territory. It wasn't just to contain outright communist attacks and invasions abroad. It was also meant to anticipate future attacks and prevent them from happening. 
The Gulf of Tonkin resolution is terrible for like dozens of reasons. For one, it was based on a false narrative and justification. The resolution itself describes repeated attacks, not true, there was just one, on US ships that were quote, lawfully present in international waters, also not true. We were violating the North Vietnamese territorial zone. The resolution also gives the president essentially a blank check to take whatever action he deems necessary in Vietnam, even though there were members of Congress at the time who were already questioning the validity of the government's account of the Gulf of Tonkin attacks. So for the bulk of the Vietnam War, Congress, constitutionally the only branch who can declare war, handed over the reins to LBJ for better or for worse. And in this case, it's for worse. The ensuing escalation of soldiers in Vietnam, the unpopularity of the war, and ultimately the complete failure of the U.S. to stop the spread of communism in the region can now be attributed to one person, President Johnson. Now, I don't actually believe any historic event can be attributed to a single person, but with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, the narrative was set. The ensuing conflict in Vietnam would come from the executive branch. If it worked, the president would get the glory, but if it didn't, well... Quick side note, one of the most impressive parts of the LBJ Presidential Library Museum is their entire section on the Vietnam War. The walls change to red. They have on display the documents relating to the Gulf of Tonkin. They clearly frame it as a mistake by Johnson. And I just have to say, not every presidential museum does this. Like, when Nixon's library opened, there was literally no mention of Watergate in the entire museum. And I really do respect that when Johnson dedicated his library, he said he wanted to show the story, quote, with the bark off. No bullshit. So suddenly, the war between the communist North and the anti-communist South in Vietnam became Americanized. By the end of 1964, there were 16,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. By 1965, just one year later, there were 180,000. By 1969, there were over half a million U.S. troops in Vietnam. This escalation of troops coincided with Operation Rolling Thunder, a sustained bombing campaign of the North that lasted three years and dropped three quarters of a million tons of bombs on North Vietnam. And I'm going to be honest, there are plenty of podcasts and books and documentaries and movies out there that will teach you about the Vietnam War in depth. For now, just know that it was brutal. Not only was the U.S. fighting the North Vietnamese military, but we were also fighting guerrilla forces in the South known as the Viet Cong. Remember that many people across Vietnam liked Ho Chi Minh, especially compared with the brutality they experienced under Diem's government. The U.S. used napalm, the sticky, ever-burning substance that was first developed to subdue Japan during World War II, in astonishing numbers. We sprayed 20 million gallons of various deadly herbicides, Herbicides? Herbicides. I just realized I've never said that word out loud. Most famously, Agent Orange. We used this to strip the leaves from the jungles and root out the enemy fighters. And importantly, so much of this war was televised for a national audience back home. Considering many Americans didn't understand why we had gotten involved in Vietnam's independence movement to begin with, coupled with the brutal tactics and the dubious justifications by the government, I mean, many conspiracy theories turned out to be right, right? Anti-war protests that had already existed in the early 1960s erupted into full-blown revolution by the mid to late 60s. Young people burned draft cards, students on college campuses called out their universities for supporting research and development that fed into this military-industrial complex, and black heroes like Muhammad Ali sacrificed their fame and careers to speak out against a war that was sending black men disproportionately. One of the most enduringly problematic aspects of the Vietnam War on the home front was the draft system. 
While in previous conflicts, especially World War II, young Americans were lining up to serve. These were wars of liberty against ruthless aggressors. Even in Korea, right? The North invaded the South. But in Vietnam, young men were doing everything they could to avoid going to war. Draft exemptions for college students meant that anyone wealthy enough to go to college and just stay there until hopefully the war was over didn't have to go fight. Medical exemptions meant that anyone privileged enough to have a family doctor who could say you had bone spurs, for example, didn't have to go fight. Young, mostly white men, often products of their parents' GI Bill benefits, went off to college and chose degrees like law and medicine that would keep them in school for as long as possible. And meanwhile, poor young men, especially men of color, who were finally being granted the privilege of fighting in a fully desegregated military, often had no way to avoid the draft. I want to pause here and just say, I'm not critical of anyone who is using any of these means to avoid going to war in Vietnam. I tell my students this all the time, that this is one of these areas of history where I have so much empathy. If my son, Leon, was potentially going to be drafted and sent to fight in the war in Vietnam, I would send him to law school, then med school, then get an art history degree, anything I could do to keep him out of that war. I'm not critical of the individuals who made these decisions. But holistically, what happens is it means that mostly poor men, especially disproportionately men of color, are being sent to fight this war. And Johnson knew, even during his presidency, that the Vietnam War was going to overshadow any other part of his legacy. But he still believed that the Vietnam War was winnable. I mean, it had to be, right? The U.S. had never lost a war before. We don't talk about the Korean War. It was a tie. We took our ball and went home. And we were the freaking United States, right? We're armed with the most advanced and terrifying weapons in human history. We're fighting against agrarian peasants who are barely free from their colonial era. The general in charge of Vietnam even said in 1967, quote, the enemy's hopes are bankrupt. It wasn't until 1968 that it started to become clear, even to Johnson, what a mistake, a quagmire Vietnam had become. Because early in the election year, while the government was assuring the public that the tide was turning and communists were close to surrender, in the middle of the night during the Lunar New Year holiday on January 30th, the North Vietnamese launched the largest coordinated attack of either side of the war up until that point. 80,000 troops attacked 100 different towns and cities at the same time, including the southern capital of Saigon. Although the U.S. was eventually able to quell the attacks after two months of intense fighting, the Tet Offensive was a clear sign that the government was wrong about the Vietnam War. Walter Cronkite, the trusted voice who up until that point had been a somewhat optimistic believer in the government's confidence in Vietnam, he broadcast from Vietnam just weeks after the initial Tet Offensive attacks. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. It wasn't long after that LBJ shocked the nation by announcing that he was no longer going to be running for president. He knew that his legacy had been too tainted by the Vietnam War to do any more good as president. And let me remind you that he did a ton of good. Texans really do like to just go big or go home, right? 
And we're going to come back to Vietnam in future episodes because, of course, the war didn't end with Johnson's presidency. It's going to take seven more years, longer than LBJ's time as president, before the U.S. will withdraw from Vietnam. But that's a story for another day. Back in 1968, for a while, it looked like JFK's younger brother, a true progressive Bobby Kennedy, might get the Democratic nomination, but he was assassinated by a Palestinian angry with Kennedy's support for Israel in the recent Six-Day War. In the end, LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, was the nominee, and he was thoroughly beaten by Richard Nixon. And then, of course, America was whole again. There was no more division or government conspiracies, and the 1970s will be just great. To be continued. Thank you again to the LBJ Presidential Library and Foundation for supporting this podcast. Teachers, if you can't make it down for a field trip, they have incredible educational resources for all ages. If you're ever in Austin, check them out and tell them Emily from Anti-Social Studies sent you.